0: Hello, and welcome to Zoni Living. Our guest today is a true inspiration. You may well recognize her traits in yourself. She strives to be the perfect mom, the perfect professional, the perfect partner. She's also a family doctor and the kind of thorough and caring physician that we all want to have. But frustratingly enough, Dr. Lisa Doggett is part of an imperfect healthcare system where quality care, access, and affordability is not available to everyone equally. She saw this every day in her clinic. As a tireless advocate for her patients, she knows just how difficult it is to navigate the healthcare system for many people, especially those who are in some way disadvantaged, and even more so when faced with a difficult disease. Her new book, Up the Down Escalator, Medicine, Motherhood, and Multiple Sclerosis, talks about the challenges of our healthcare system, but it's also a story of triumph in the face of a terrifying diagnosis and a memoir of Lisa's shift from doctor to patient. Dr. Lisa Doggett joins us now from Austin, Texas. Hi, Lisa. Thank you so much. Hi, thank you so much for having me on. It's great to see you. You know, I wanted to say, like a lot of women, I picked up on this easily throughout your book. You are really hard on yourself. And as you noted in your book, you felt you had to be that mom, the one who always makes a homemade birthday cake, even if that meant thumping out the the cake from the pan at 11 o'clock at night. You had to attend all the kids' events, like the Halloween festival at your daughter's preschool, even if it meant rushing through appointments at work and arriving late anyway. Well, you wrote, the weekend was as packed as an overstuffed suitcase because i didn't want to miss a thing and i can so relate to that at work you were a big problem solver for your clients described as an eclectic an eclectic mix of uninsured patients from a manic pink-haired stripper to an undocumented man paralyzed by high voltage power lines give us a glimpse of what life was like at that clinic
1: thank you so much for having me on it's really an honor to be here you know, I worked for seven years as the director of a clinic for people without private health insurance, and every day was a real big challenge. My passion and my whole career has been about helping people, uh, vulnerable populations, and people who are often underrepresented and often don't have a voice to have better access to care. Um, and so the, my memoir is about that period of time when I was directing that clinic and then a little bit of time afterwards. The, the work was very rewarding, but also very tough. Every day we experienced challenges that I couldn't even imagine. I had a patient with bats in her apartment. I had a patient who couldn't afford $4 to pay for his anxiety medicine, was having a lot of withdrawal. I had a patient who's uh, was raising her grandchildren after her daughter went missing. For oh. years, her, her daughter had been missing and she was struggling with significant depression as a result. I had a great team uh, of nurses, nurse practitioners, uh, medical assistants, but we didn't have a social worker. Uh, we didn't have a regular access to behavioral health, and so I was the social worker in mm-hmm. addition to being the doctor. And uh, it was it was definitely uh, an exhausting process on a daily basis trying to help our patients.
0: Lisa, you reference studies and statistics about the imperfections of the U.S. healthcare system in your book. You state. A twenty twenty-one Wall Street Journal analysis showed that hospitals often charge uninsured patients the highest prices. You wrote how you'd navigate the highways, side streets, and dark, crooked alleys of Austin, Texas's health care system. And there were sharp turns and frequent dead ends. You knew the discount pharmacies and the ones that overcharged. You could rattle off long lists of generic medications that you favored over the expense of new drugs. And you said you had a mental Rolodex of specialty doctors that you could call in favors. You did this all because you cared so much about your patients, but this seems like a ridiculously unfair burden to put on doctors to not just diagnose and treat patients, but also to try to figure out the puzzle for how to pull together resources.
1: Thank you. Yes, it it is unfair, but it's just what you do when you're in that situation. I learned not even to question it most of the time because I was just running from one crisis to the next and couldn't think about it. Uh, at a kind of a broader level, our specialty care was very limited. Uh, I, as I, as you said, uh, I did have that list of doctors that I would call for favors, but I didn't have a comprehensive list. We certainly had a lot of specialists uh, where I didn't or specialties that I needed that I didn't have access to, and I was having to really push my beyond my limits of of experience and training to help patients that were. You know needing specialty care so for example we didn't have ready access to orthopedics or pain management neurosurgery dermatology um, the wait times for some specialties were really long i had a patient who waited for two years to get in to see an ear nose and throat specialist and then in addition to that a lot of my patients were people of color and they faced an extra burden of discrimination um, there were a lot of people that didn't speak english I had patients that couldn't read. I had patients that looked disheveled. So sometimes when they would go see a specialist or if I had to send them to the emergency room, I didn't know what kind of care they were going to get because they were not treated fairly. Um, I had one patient even from uh, Central America who had a spinal tumor and was told to go back home to her original country um, because the hospital didn't want to treat her.
0: Oh, my gosh. Um,
1: it was, I know, it was heartbreaking, and I was struggling so much to care for these patients um, and, at the same time, to care for my own kids at home, uh, try to balance everything. Sure. Uh, it was often impossible.
0: Oh, yes. I uh, I, I felt, uh, I really felt your pain, and I thought, you know, most of us um, get frustrated at some point with the the healthcare system, but not to the extent that you've described. Most of us don't see that. Well, I also found it really interesting to read about social determinants of health, which you say have a far greater impact on health than any medical treatment. That is a strong statement. So please explain what is meant by social determinants.
1: Yes, so social determinants of health are the conditions and and the places where we People where people live, work, play, go to school, just live our lives, um, and that they affect a wide range of health conditions and outcomes. Uh, We've learned over the last several years that about 80 to 90% of health outcomes are determined by social determinants of health. Only 10 to 20% of health outcomes are based on what care people receive in a clinic setting in a medical setting so uh you know for example in austin where i live um, we see about a 12 year difference in life expectancy based on where someone lives what zip code they live in in houston where i went to medical school that difference is about 20 years based on where someone lives so we have incredible medical technology we're able to offer gene therapy to do surgeries that are amazing and complex and yet we have so much work to do to elevate those that don't have um, the same access to just the basics—to um, have safe place to live, safe place to uh, to go to school and work, um, healthy ac- access to healthy food—and um, you know that's where really where so much of our health outcomes uh, comes from.
0: That is astonishing. Twelve to twenty years difference in life expectancy. Yeah, crazy. Well. As we've become more aware through the pandemic, you write about social isolation that puts people more at risk of anxiety, depression, heart disease, any number of serious ailments, and even premature death. And you wrote, so many of my patients suffered from a deep loneliness that I could never eradicate.
1: Tell us about that. Right. Connection is so important. And I, I don't even think I fully understood that until, I mean, it's something I'm still kind of learning, learning more about. And yet uh, I didn't really understand the importance of connection until I myself got sick. And I know we're going to talk a little bit more about that, but I had patients who were pretty much totally isolated other than coming into our clinic. They didn't have family close by. Sometimes they were isolated because they had moved a lot. Uh, They had uh, cultural uh, isolation as well as language barriers. Um, some were estranged or separated from family. Um, I had a patient who I just adored, who was an alcoholic and he had his dogs for company and that was it. And mm. he was trying to get sober, desperately wanted to get sober and struggled mm. so much. And I think a big part of that was he didn't have the support and the connections. So I've just come to see through my own experiences, as well as through my patient's experiences, how important it is to have that support circle.
0: You know, you really do capture that so well in the book, too. And you've got us rooting for people that we don't know uh, and, and can really feel your compassion. So between home and work and knowing how hard you push yourself, you were firing on all cinder- cylinders, and I have no doubt you're doing the same today, yet you didn't feel like you were competent in any area. And then one day you woke up dizzy.
1: That's right. Yes. I was I loved my patients, but it was always a challenge. I also love my kids, but they are also a challenge, certainly (laughs) much less so now that they're older. But uh, I woke up dizzy two days before my younger daughter turned two years old. Oh, my gosh. And uh, I had another child who was four. Four. (laughs) uh, And I was, again, striving to be that perfect mom, even while I'm trying to be the perfect doctor. It was already really hard. And then I got sick and I didn't know what was going on. I thought I had a brain tumor because later that same week after I woke up dizzy with this sort of bizarre feeling every morning that I something was off, um, I started getting double vision. Then I had taste. I had taste changes. I didn't know what could possibly explain this this group of symptoms that came all together. And I actually pulled out an old medical textbook. and was trying to figure out where my brain tumor could be located that would explain what was happening. It was, it was very scary. Um, But I I didn't even think about MS and yet that's what I ended up having. Uh, I was diagnosed nine days after the onset of my symptoms with multiple sclerosis.
0: Mm. Well, MS multiple sclerosis has long been referred to as the crippler of young adults. There's no cure, but there are much better medicines to manage the symptoms today than ever before. The title of one of your chapters, Lisa, is A Life Sentence. Tell us about this disease, the strange symptoms, and how one size certainly
1: doesn't fit all. Right. Um, MS is a disease of the central nervous system It can affect anywhere pretty much in the brain or the spinal cord. And it's an autoimmune process. What happens with MS is that our immune system attacks the myelin, which is the coating around our nerve cells, so that our brain and spinal cord can't communicate as well with the rest of the body. Um, We don't know what causes it. Uh, We have some theories. One of them is that Epstein-Barr virus, which causes mono, may be a trigger for MS, but we don't know why certain people are triggered and others aren't. Symptoms of MS can include mobility. I think that's the one probably most people are familiar with. Mm -hmm. So mobility problems, trouble walking, um, but there's also sensory changes. Visual changes are really common. Fatigue is actually the most common symptom. Um, Depression, bowel and bladder problems, cognitive changes. It can be a very wide range of symptoms. Uh, It's one of the reasons it's kind of tricky to diagnose is there's not like a typical presentation. It can be any variety of things. Um, it's usually about, uh, seen in, in women more than men. So in about a three to one ratio of women to men, and it's common in young adults. So people ages 20 up to age 50, it can come at any age, but it's more common in young people. Um, and, and I was actually very lucky to get an early diagnosis, um, which I think was largely due to being a doctor and having the right connections.
0: Wow. You know, I can just feel when you get that diagnosis, I can imagine you thinking, You just don't have time for this. And there was a moment one night when you described the defeat you felt as a clinic doctor, and you wrote, MS made me feel powerless. I was now less likely to succeed. I couldn't cure poverty or fix our broken health care system. Were you worried about your own
1: state of mind, your own depression, perhaps? Yes, you know, I think I was depressed, but more than that, I was demoralized a lot of times i was i was triggered by that that sense of of just powerlessness was triggered by my own health and then also by my work and both kind of fed off the other we've learned in, in recent years that a lot of healthcare professionals are suffering from what has been termed moral distress or moral injury that's this under you know this feeling as a doctor or another health professional that you know what your patient needs but you can't get it for them. And I think that it was very, very common at my clinic that I knew what someone needed, but I couldn't get them the medicine or the specialist or the test that they needed or the behavioral health counselor um, to, to help them get better, to get, to get the, the true um, treatment that I thought they deserved. So that was very much getting me down. In addition to the fact that I wasn't firing at all cylinders, mm-hmm. that I was limited in my ability to um, to even think clearly sometimes. Um, but I, I was able, fortunately, to reach out to my own support circle and eventually to realize I need to prioritize my self-care. And, and I got a lot of help from friends and family to help me do that.
0: Yeah, what a, what a great blessing that is. You also talked about being inspired by your patients. One of your clients said her diabetes diagnosis actually made her take better care of herself.
1: Right. Yes. I I had some patients who were struggling and and couldn't turn things around. But then I had others that were resilient. Um, One of my very favorite patients had the worst asthma I have ever seen. Mm -hmm. And she was on oral steroids, which is fairly uncommon for asthma to have to take um, a pill of of steroids by mouth every day. um, And that caused her to have a lot of weight gain. Um, And she struggled a lot with arthritis uh, in part because of the weight as well as uh, as her asthma just kept getting worse. Um, But she was resilient and ultimately she was able to change her diet and she lost 60 pounds uh, and her asthma improved dramatically. Um, So I was inspired by people like her and by the patient that you mentioned with diabetes who said, you know, diabetes, that wasn't the worst thing for me. It's helped me take better care of myself. So I took some of those lessons to heart and thought, you know, MS is not an excuse for me to stay at home. It's really like, this is going to be my launch pad to do more and do it now, because I don't know what's what the future holds. I have a lot of uncertainty and I, I don't want to be stuck wishing I had um, tried and done different things um, that, you know, I've had, that opportunities have passed me by.
0: Well, you also talk about meditation. And I know you were looking for a way to manage the stress as you were discussing, Did you find it through meditation as well?
1: I tried so many things to help with my dizziness. I had dizziness every day for like a couple of years. And I tried acupuncture, yoga, balance therapy, all sorts of weird restrictive diet changes, Hmm. um, visual therapy. And I finally decided, you know, I can't be thinking about this all the time and trying all these things. I need to just kind of give it a rest so when i started meditation i wasn't really intending to do meditation to help with my symptoms of dizziness but i thought yeah maybe it'll help a little bit with stress and i had some doctor friends that were encouraging me to try it um ultimately mindfulness meditation has helped my dizziness more than anything else wow Uh, it's also been a great tool yeah right it's uh, it's been a very good tool for me to cope with anxiety as well as help me sleep better um, it's been a, a huge improvement in my life.
0: Wow. Well, through your book, Up the Down Escalator, we learned that you became a really good patient. You took your medicine, you focused on taking care of yourself, and you continued to exercise through the brain fog and the exhaustion. And you set yourself a very big goal and you kept it to yourself. Tell us about that and, and the importance of setting goals.
1: So I really did make self-care a top priority. Uh, I decided that one chronic disease is more than enough. I did not (laughs) want to get another one. Um, So, you know, I think it's a little bit of a spoiler, but as my symptoms improved, I decided that I wanted a big physical challenge. I am a runner. I am not a good runner. I am a slow (laughs) runner, (laughs) Um, but I decided that I wanted to start training uh, for a marathon My uh, I didn't I didn't want to tell anybody because I I think that I I felt like I I wasn't sure I could do it. And I didn't want to I didn't want to disappoint anybody else and and have to explain why I I couldn't succeed. Uh, But ultimately, I kept kind of pushing myself to run one more mile every week. And my running partner Jess finally made me fess up. So <laughs> I completed a marathon on Valentine's Day oh, in 2016. Yay! Which was awesome. Congratulations. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Wow. Thank you. And and I've been Really, I, I have not run a marathon since then, but I have done a, <laughs> okay. a half Ironman triathlon. <laughs> you've got you've got still your run. time,
0: right? You know you did it.
1: Yeah, I did it. And uh, and I ride the MS-150 bike ride now every spring, mm. which has been a, a great uh, opportunity, to, again, to connect with people with MS and to also push myself. And where is that located? There are actually bike MS events all over the country, okay. but the biggest one is here in Texas, and it's a ride from Austin and also from Houston to College Station, Texas, over a two-day weekend. Oh
0: wow! Well, good for you, amazing. What does your life look like today?
1: It's still really full. My life, I still think <laughs> why is am I kind not surprised,
0: like... <laughs> Lisa?
1: <laughs> right? No, it's still like an overstuffed suitcase. I think <laughs> I, <laughs> I do like that analogy. Um I'm of course working a lot on on book promotion. Uh writing this book has been a very lengthy process as well as getting it published, but it's been a, a dream come true. Um I still do a lot of writing. I write a column for a, a news outlet called Public Health Watch. Um and I still work. Uh, I'm working currently for a company that does designs programs for people with Medicaid and Medicare mm. um, to help keep them as healthy as possible. Um, My life is definitely easier with older kids. So my daughters are 15 and 18 and they are terrific. They're doing well, much to my relief. Um,
0: (laughs) Good job, mom.
1: (laughs) Thank you. Thank you. And then uh, of course I still stay very active. I, I exercise every morning, first thing in the morning, um, really do try to eat a good, healthy diet. Um, I'm happy that I've, been able to maintain a solid marriage. That has been a challenge and we've worked hard, but I feel like we're good partners. He sounds like a real gem. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, for sure. Uh, And I'm, of course, training for the MS-150 again uh, this spring.
0: Boy, every day you get up every day to exercise. That's, that's incredible. Dr. Lisa Doggett, you're an incredible person, a beautiful inspiration of strength and compassion and your book offers such rare insight into the inequities of our healthcare system here in the United States, and also into this unusual disease. Well, thank you for being with us today. It's really been a joy, and uh, boy, I, I've learned so much through your book. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. Dr. Lisa Doggett's new book. Up the Down Escalator, Medicine, Motherhood, and Multiple Sclerosis is available on Amazon. Read more about Dr. Doggett at FlagstaffBusinessNews.com. I'll leave you with a quote from Lisa's book that really spoke to me. She writes, I know I complain about being overwhelmed all the time, but it's really a good problem to have. It's a gift to never be bored, to have a life that's too full. This is Zoni Living, Business, Adventure, and Leadership. I'm Bonnie Stevens.